What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another installment in the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Kyle Kimbrell, and just wanted to kick things off a bit for you here, tell you where we're headed, and then a bit about the topic today before we really kind of kind of dive in. Um, I just got back from Denver, Colorado, had a, a great, another great course at, at Next Level Sports Performance Physical Therapy. Always, always fun to be there with my, my friends at Next Level and, and get to meet more and more of their of their crew um big shout out to tj for for playing host always does a fantastic job and then this time y'all check this out i got to go to tj's house and he cooked ribeyes for me and he got some great colorado local beers and we had a bit of that and then his wife oh i feel so bad for sam sam made the mistake the 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 big mistake of challenging me to a game of washers and she thought she had an advantage because she had these Colorado Rocky washer boards and everything. But let me tell you, I, I walked away the champion of the, the, the TJ and Sam Hovel household. Um, I, I was, I, she even gave me a, a gold-plated plastic medal that she will have to win back. So big shout-out to Sam for being a... a a good a good loser not a sore loser because i i take no prisoners when it comes to washers or cornhole or any of those fun backyard games and so till next time sam uh thanks to everybody that that came out uh to that course i know some of you listen to the podcast and hopefully some of you start um and 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 i really really thank you a lot for for coming because um it was it was a fun day a uh, long day but fun day for sure so um if you want to take um one of our courses coming up we got quite a few options but a lot of this stuff is is selling out kind of quickly so honestly um I would suggest you signing up if you if you listen and, and you're kind of on the fence. So Austin, Texas, August 29th, Long Island, New York, September 12th, and San Diego, September 12th are all sold out. So our next three options are, are actually sold out right now. They're waitlisted. If you want to get on the waitlist and kind of roll the dice, please feel free. Um, we can certainly do that for you, but those are officially sold out right now. Dallas, Texas. Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Little Rock, Arkansas, all on September 26th. Still have some room, but they're they're definitely all more than half full. So um, sign up, please, if if you're kind of thinking about it, and 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 we'll get you in those courses. Then then getting into October, I'll tell you a bit about October. It's going to be busy, so I'm going to zip through this here because I don't want to bore you with all this. But also want you to just kind of be able to tell your friends um, if you if we're going to be in your area and, and you think they might. They might want to come. Uh, New Orleans and Atlanta, both on October 3rd, uh, will be there. Atlanta's actually already sold out crazy enough, um, and New Orleans is definitely picking up. Tucson will be at Body Central Physical Therapy in, in Tucson, Arizona. Um, another just a cool facility, fantastic space. Jennifer, owner there, um, just has been an awesome host for us in the past and, and, and look forward to going back there. That course is doing pretty good already, um, and, and so we look forward to, to being there. Then we'll be in Chicago on October 11th. Um, Bozeman, Montana, my friend Laura Opsidal's place, um, build physio and sport performance on October 17th, Bozeman, Montana. That course, it has like three or four spots left in it is also, um, if you're thinking about coming to that one, please sign up soon. And then that same day we'll be in San Antonio, Texas as well. Um, at, at Catalyst Physical Therapy. If you want to get to that one, just shoot over to our website, owensrecoveryscience.com. Click the Get Certified 
tab up at the top and then um, you can figure out the rest from there, I'm sure. Um, then we'll be in Bethesda, Maryland on October 24th, Sioux Falls, South Dakota on October 24th, and Tulsa, Oklahoma on October 24th, just finishing up the month there with three courses back to back. All those, again, have, you know, I think they're, you know, a quarter full, half full, something like that. Things have really been kind of picking up. I, I think everybody's just sort of sick of being at home, which I, I completely understand, of course, because I've been doing the same. So look forward to, to seeing you at our courses coming up. Uh, today's podcast, we, we pick apart an, a new paper looking at what many people call the swelling response to BFR, this, this idea that you can just use the inflations of the tourniquet uh, to limit muscle atrophy. So it was a fun conversation that we had. We had a good time learning about this topic because we went down some rabbit trails. Um, and we do a little bit in the podcast, but hopefully um, you walk away just with an interest in um, how we might be able to use this really kind of early on to limit some of the atrophy that we see in in people that are post-op um, and after injury and that sort of thing. So without further ado, I'm going to kick it over to Jimmy McKay to intro us, and then we'll get going. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right. Welcome back. Johnny Owens here, Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Got the, the quarantining fools, uh, Ben Weatherford, Kyle Kimbrell, Zach Dunkel. Although we're, we're back out in the world now, um, as you heard in the intro, courses are, are happening. So if you want to get BFR certified, go to owensrecoveryscience.com. Look at our courses. We've got them going all over the world right now. They're sold out, I, I heard, in Italy. Um, and also when you get certified, not only do you go through the course, but then you're part of our cool club. Um, we have a private group. You basically have our contact information. I personally give Ben, Kyle, and Zach cell phone to everybody, so feel free to reach out to them. But but no, you do have access to us um, and, and everyone in our group to help. So there's a, there's a lot more to it than just certification. We just wanna make sure people do this and do it right. So um, what's up, fellas? What's going on? What's up, Zach? How, Zach, are you like boy? so stoked? This is like my day, dude. I'm gonna talk about <laughs> Murph One and ubiquitin. I, I can hardly even say. <laughs> so, so, so Zach's like ubiquitin ligases. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm from yeah. West Texas. I, right now, everybody's say, like, you, Murph One is well. that a CrossFit workout? Or yeah. I've heard of that CrossFit workout. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay, <laughs> no, no, no. Wait. You guys know this stuff drives me crazy when there's a name on something and I can't understand why they would name it. This, yeah, I, had, right? I had to look it up also. So it's muscle ring finger one. And I'm like, what That's the right. Someone, someone discovered this protein and is like, I'm going to call this thing muscle ring finger one. Like, <laughs> yeah. like some people just cop out. Like whoever discovered growth hormone, talk about a freaking cop out. Can you imagine that? Like <laughs> the guy's like... <laughs> Oh, hey, Jim, I uh, found this hormone. It looks like it, it makes things grow, especially kids. It looks super important. And he's like, wow, Bob, that's like, that's huge, man. That's like Nobel Prize. What are you going to call it? Uh, well, it makes things grow and it's a hormone. So I'm going to call it growth hormone. <laughs> Dude, you're taking the easy road there. You sure you're going with that? So muscle ring finger one, there's no, there's no reasoning behind it that I can find. But I found a ton about your freaking ring finger. Did you see all that? <laughs> 
So the ring finger used to be called the leech finger because they thought that your heart was connected to your ring finger through a direct artery. So that's where they would leech. And that's why you put your ring on your ring finger because it connects straight to your heart. So that it didn't what? help a damn bit with why they call this muscle <laughs> ring finger. Right? <laughs> that totally different route. Oh, yeah. 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 It, so that's also clear. So it's actually, so, you know, I looked at that name, that ring designation in the name actually stands for really interesting new gene. That's what ring is as part of that name. Shut up. I swear. Here we go with the Weatherford explanations. I swear to you. Got the bang. What is it? The Rosetta Stone for research yeah. studies. You bought that on Amazon. Hooked on phonics. And then, yeah, yeah we, we, yeah. So <laughs> this is it, all those ring designations. It's part of that ubiquitin ligase family. They're really interesting new genes. And then that, that nice. finger is, is part of the zinc attachment to the compound, I think. Oh, They're talking about the zinc cool. finger as part of that. We just lost compound. every last listener yeah. that we didn't have. Yeah, well, you didn't, you didn't find <laughs> Jack the ring finger. God, yeah. right now. Yeah. I was just, okay. I wanted to let you lay it out. I didn't want to interrupt you. That was gold. Yeah. That was good. Well, you did better research than I did. You actually found how do we how do we pronounce the the triad again? What was that? The fear cow. Fear fear cow. Fear. Well, okay. So don't no one stop listening because we're going to talk <laughs> about this stuff. No, really, because it's this is freaking fascinating. We're going to try not to go in a two hour deep dive here. Um, but there's a really cool paper that that found some things out on this um, pathway and what's catabolism. Um, which is the breakdown of muscle versus what we talk a lot about is anabolism, which is the increase in muscle. So we're going to, we're going to get deep down into that. So, but then just want to wrap kind of up the intro here. Um, things going on the, our ABTA instructional course lecture should be coming out. We hope next month. Um, we put a lot of work in that. So you can go to the American Physical Therapy Association um, site and you can find our whole BFR instructional course lecture we put together. Um, next week, I'm speaking at the EIM Align Conference. It's all done virtual. Um, and so the only thing cool about virtual is we can have people now from all over the world speak at this conference. So it looks like some pretty good speakers. I'm speaking with Paul Hodges on my panel, um, which I don't know how we're aligned together because we're going to be talking about totally different things, I think. But it's, it's cool that we have people from New Zealand, Australia, all over the world at this. Um, just a couple more things. Alex Smith got cleared. I don't know if anyone saw that, I, I definitely saw it. So, um, you know, if anyone who's followed our stuff with Project 11 and Alex Smith's recovery, um, that's pretty cool news for us to, to hear. I was, I was on Sirius XM NFL this week discussing um, his chances of playing or not. So um, pretty cool. And then um, we're wrapping up been doing this big, long, like months long piece with men's health about blood flow restriction. So I'm a little nervous of what direction that'll go, but um, <laughs> hoping it's positive. So, so that's, that's that. All right, so let's get into this. There's a cool paper that just came out. Um, it's titled Effects of Blood Flow Restriction on Muscle Size and Gene Expression in Muscle During Immobilization, a pilot study. So more, more, more like stupid facts here. This was done in physiological reports, which I, I haven't really ever read anything in physiological reports. So again, anything new to me kind of makes my brain mess up. But that's the, the Journal of the Physiological Society. The Physiological Society, I found out, was formed in, 19, in 1876. It's the oldest physiological society. It was, it was formed over in England. And its honorary first two members were Charles Darwin and William Sharpie, who is the father of physiology. So pretty cool journal, I guess. Not the impact America? factor isn't huge, but 
I was gonna ask not that the also. marker. Yeah, Sharpie the marker. What? Oh, sharply, sharply. Oh, sharply. Ah, okay. Oh, oh. Yeah. No, it is sharpie. You're right, sharpie. Sharpie Maybe he is like the marker, the marker guy. Maybe right. he made the marker yeah. too. Guys, that's serious. That's serious impact right there, Johnny. It is. That would have been huge. I'll have to see if he figured that out. So here's here's the deal with this paper. This paper is looking at cell swelling or the application of BFR without exercise. And, and if you haven't heard this concept, go back. We have a podcast where we went really deep into everything that's looked at. Can you use just a tourniquet, inflate it, deflate it, inflate it, deflate it from three to five rounds and have some sort of preserving effect on muscle or other tissues? And so if you listen to our podcast, there's multiple papers that have shown that it seems to preserve muscle and it seems to preserve strength. Um, primarily in the lower extremity. We, we use it a ton clinically um, and, and with the teams um, when people are in periods of disuse. Now, the problem is we talk a lot about there is this downregulation of protein synthesis that happens when you're in periods of disuse. And so if protein synthesis goes down, your body starts to dump muscle. It's termed anabolic resistance. And so what before this article, Van Loon's group over in Europe, and if you don't know their lab, they're basically the big dogs of looking at disuse models. They know themselves around some immobilized limbs. Um, and, and what they wanted to see is, if you do just passive BFR, does it increase protein synthesis? And they did passive BFR, they did BFR at low load, and then they did just low load on subjects. What they found was if you did low load, it increased, increased protein synthesis significantly. If you did BFR in low load, it actually did significantly increase protein synthesis significantly, which that's huge because this is a, a, a really super well-respected lab who did a really high-end study, five hours you know, of, of subjects um, have, having their protein synthetic rates measured after they get done with the intervention, biopsies, et cetera. It shows, yes, BFR with low-level exercise does increase protein synthesis. But the passive BFR group, no increase in protein synthesis, right? So when you first read that, you're like, well, what the hell? How is this preserving muscle if it's not making protein synthesis change at all? And so that's where I want to come to this paper, because this paper at least opened up. This might be the mechanism that might be important. So um, I'll let, you know, Zach, do you want to kind of take off on what the, the study is and, and what they were looking at doing? Yeah, so uh, pretty similar to um, the Kubota paper that was already out there. Um, what they did was they did two weeks of ankle and knee cast immobilization, um, did biopsies uh, out of the vastus lateralis. Uh, baseline was on the, um, the contralateral or uninvolved side. And then um, throughout the duration of the study, they did muscle biopsies out of the uh, immobilized side. Uh, at day one, day seven, and day 14. Uh, groups, uh, 10 individuals were separated into either just a straight up control, which was uh, just cast immobilization. And then the other group was a cell swelling group, uh, which uh, pretty similar to all the cell swelling papers that have been out there, five minutes of ischemia or five minutes tough inflation, three, three minutes of uh, deflation, five cycles five times and twice a day over the two week period. Um, and so markers that they were looking at, um, some of our characteristic um, proteolytic pathway markers, uh, so myostatin is a big heavy hitter, 
Um, we've previously seen like that's involved with either step reduction within a week or mobilization within a week. We see that upregulated. Um, and then they also looked at um, the receptor at which myostatin binds to, which is an active receptor. Downstream uh, from that, they looked at um, kind of key markers of protein degradation, which is uh, muscle atrophy, FBOX1, and then muscle ring finger 1. Um, so, so it's kind of the, that's a, the general general layout. And that's the, that's the important point here. So in this study was actually looking more at markers of muscle degradation. So our protein, net protein balance equation is super easy. You're either synthesizing muscle or you're breaking down muscle. If you synthesize less, you lose muscle. If you break down more, you lose muscle. So the Van Loon study said you don't synthesize more in this state. What these guys want to look at is when you're in periods of disuse, are you breaking down more? And we also, we talked about this before, but this is a bitch of a study. You know, when people are, are looking at, well, you know, it was 10 subjects, but when you're looking at these kind of like lab-based studies, that's, that, that's okay. But they immobilize individuals. Can you imagine signing up like, hey, what do I gotta do to get in this study? Well, we're gonna put you in a cast. Okay, and then what? Well, you have to use crutches for two weeks. Crazy, like, well, what is that gonna do to me? Well, you're gonna lose a bunch of muscle in your leg from that. Damn, anything else? Well, we're gonna biopsy you at least three times as well during that. And they're like, sign me up, man. I, I wanna do this thing. So um, it's definitely a hard study, but, but let's get into what they found. So if you wanna keep rolling on that, Zach. Yeah, so, um, you know, kind of characteristically with what we've known previously with the Van Loon paper and whatnot, um, they looked at um, the ribosomal protein P70S6K1 from the protein synthetic side of the equation. Um, no, no real um, difference between groups there. So that, that kind of jives with everything that we've seen. So we're not really doing a whole lot of synthesizing protein. Um, where we, we see kind of where the cell swelling may have an effect is on the degradation pathway. Um, and then uh, basically the, the key marker with this muscle ring finger one. And what we see is we, we have a, a significant effect down regulating this pathway at day seven. And um, we, it, it, it starts to decrease um, at day one, significantly different at day seven. And then at day 14, both have returned back down to kind of like the baseline level. Um, and, and the significance of that is we really, it goes back to this anabolic resistance um, concept in that anabolic resistance peaks within three, three weeks. It, it, it occurs very, very fast. And this pathway really peaks within the first um, seven days. After that, that seven days, then um, we're kind of back down where we started. So protein breakdown is uh, the most significant within that first week. And then we start getting the contribution of this other, these other factors, could it be myostatin and so on. And I think um, that's an important point because we're trying to get therapists to think differently and kind of physiologically about muscle. And so to know that protein breakdown is the first response, and it, man, what a, what a crazy response. Like your body, as soon as you're not using a limb, there's a, there's a rat model where they cut the ACL and protein breakdown, MRF1, everything went up like significantly when you cut your damn ACL. So I'm not sure why your body wants to dump muscle, but it does. So it, you're in catabolism, you're breaking down muscle that first seven to 10 days. So you're almost like your protocol is like, okay, now we're in the catabolism phase of rehab. 
And then yeah. you start to lose protein synthesis, myostatin goes up, and then it's like, now I gotta get into the anabolism phase where I start to try and drive protein synthesis up, right? Yeah, and that's, and that's one of the interesting things too. So, you know, without getting into too, too deep of details, they've looked at where the target of say muscle ring finger one is, and, and it's really at the myosin heavy chains. And, and so you think about it, I mean, it directly, this, this factor goes right towards the contractile elements of the muscle. Um, and with that said, so we really think that muscle ring finger one goes to the, um, the degradation of protein. Um, and, and again, it happens within a week. Um, that, that's yeah. just how fast this occurs. Um, so it, it goes to, you know, understanding why the rice principle or peace and love, whatever, you know, the new mnemonic is that, that we just, we, 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 we use to describe um, you know, kind of just, just give things a break and then magic happens and everything's better. It's not what happens at all. It's, it's literally, you just kick the can down the road. You but, add a you know. tourniquet to anything and it's magic. Zach, don't you know what podcast you're on right now? <laughs> I mean, keep with the narrative, man. Like we talked about this off air. Good grief. <laughs> this is what I would say is one of the challenges that I think we have as a profession is we think that things make, we, you know, we do an intervention and we think that this is the effect that it has, but whenever it's looked at, it's not really what happens. The, the thing with BFR is, you know, we talked about it in that previous podcast, we really think cell swelling, it doesn't contribute to muscle protein synthesis. It, it really contributes to putting the brakes on this protein um, degradation pathway. And, you know, lo and behold, it's really kind of exactly what happens. We're, we're, we're just slowing um, the amount of atrophy that we get. That, that's a nice yeah. thing about BFR is we, we think this is the mechanism. We think this is the pathway. Well, let's just take a look. And, and it, it certainly looks that way. Yeah. And I, so wrapping up what they found in their study then was significantly less loss of muscle in the quad and the hamstring in the group that did the the passive bfr cell swelling whatever we want to call it and also MRF one which typically when you go into disuse rises was significantly blunted if you put the tourniquets on so you were slowing down the the catabolism was the gist of it and they started this immediately um basically you go into mobilization and then you're going to get this passive bfr intervention right away which again, people are like, when would you start BFR after surgery? Man, if, if you're us, right away. You know, yeah. Unless the person has just got some reason not to do it. They're just too painful, hot limb, infection, something else. We have a whole list of contraindications. We take our course. But for us, right away to start to slow down this pathway. And it looked like, you know, according to the results, you know, obviously there was still loss in muscle size for the BFR group, especially in the quad. It didn't really shut down that atrophy completely. It was just less than the control group. Hamstrings were a little better preserved in the BFR group, but didn't have a, a huge loss in the control group either. You know, maybe because they're keeping their leg non-weight bearing, they're actually using their hamstrings some to keep it in the air. Because um, it was an ankle immobilization, right? Not, not yeah. at the knee as well. And so that, it was that goes ankle along, and knee. Was it? No, it was ankle knee. Yeah. Ankle knee. Yeah. Ankle and knee. Well, and that yeah. goes along with their previous two papers from the Kubota group of, you know, the they haven't really shown perfect preservation of size, but there's a much better preservation of strength, which is really interesting to me is to, you know, if we're slowing down this this protein breakdown, but still seeing a, 
Steen's yeah, match yeah. happen. Yeah, Kubota's, Kubota's prior paper, you know, 10% loss of strength of two weeks in the quad versus 30% in the control group. So that's that's pretty nice if you've been able to maintain that. But I think that's a good point. You're When you're in this catabolism phase of BFR, you're slowing down muscle loss. You're not increasing it. You're probably not preserving it. So you can't tell your patient, like, I mean, maybe you'll get lucky. I mean, I think like with J.D. Clowney, it seemed like he just didn't lose muscle. Um, but he's, he's a special beast, but you know, that's something that you would want to know if your patients is we're doing this, it's hard, but we're going to really hopefully be preserving your muscle. Cause what we've seen is once you lose it, it's really hard to get it back. That mouse study or that rat study where they cut the ACL and they did a sham where they just went in and did surgery, but didn't cut the ACL. Both groups had increase in, in, in catabolism. Murph was up, um, and they saw a little bit of atrophy, but the group that didn't have their ACL cut at 15 days had gotten all their muscle mass back. The ACL cut group still was losing muscle mass at that point. So, you you know, once once you have this stuff happen to you and it starts to go up, it really seems to, to hit you and stay with you for a while. I think going, going back to Ben didn't kind of finish where I thought he might go there, but I mean, we also have a pretty good idea that the quad muscle is going to atrophy faster than the hamstring muscle. Um, I mean, and I, I know Johnny, I remember you saying that back in 2015, you know, when, when I took the course, you were talking about the NASA studies, how they had really shown that quad and soleus kind of tend to go away the fastest. And, and, and it, there's, a, there's a paper that looks at like fiber type specificity and, and how you preferentially will like in skeletal muscle in humans, you will, depending on, what the impetus is for the atrophy, you will atrophy type one before type two, et cetera. So, you know, in, in this circumstance, like in a mobilization circumstance, what you'll see is those type one fibers really atrophy and almost shift towards like a type two X. So there's this, uh, there's a way. And so I, th I think, you know, with hamstrings, we tend to probably think maybe they're more type two fiber-ish. They're going to move a bit faster, more powerfully perhaps. Um, so, Anyway, um, just kind of an important sort of point to note that, that it really just kind of affirms some information that we kind of already had in terms of what will atrophy and when. So that quad becomes really important in a, in a knee, you know. Yeah, we know. And that's the hardest thing to get back for sure. Or like we said, if you had an Achilles repair, that calf just never seems to want to come back. And, and so I, I think what's important to point out, too, is MRF1 does go up from exercise. And so it's been shown in BFR. Van Loon's paper showed that. It's been shown in the heavy lifting papers that part of after you lift heavy is you have an increased breakdown and MRF1 will go up and the, cat, the catabolism will increase. But that's all part about getting protein turnover going. And so that's an important piece to protein turnover. So if you read like Van Loon's paper, when you did exercise with BFR, protein synthesis went up, but MRF1 also went up. But they said that's a very important pathway. When you're in a period of disuse, and you're not getting that synthesis to rise because you can't stimulate that pathway, then we, I think we really got to go after slowing down these catabolic pathways. Um, so as you get past the cell swelling, passive BFR, that's when we see catabolism starts to shut off at around 10 days. And then you're going to start to see synthesis goes down. And that's when you just, in that second week, starting incorporating BFR with exercise, to hopefully downregulate myostatin, which is starting to rise and start to increase protein synthetic rates 
to fight that anabolic resistance, right? I think it's meant so, they're like setting this up perfectly segue wise of how we would structure a, a perfect protocol. Yeah, and it's I mean, it, it, yeah, scary place. Kyle's um, fantasy land here. <laughs> you know, and it, it seems like, you know, a lot less, and we've talked about this before, a lot less is really known about these protein degradation pathways. You know, we really don't know exactly when they're upregulated don't really know, you know, exactly what regulates them. Um, but obviously the inactivity, uh, we see that go up or any, you know, any time period where there's breakdown of tissue, we see these multiple things that are elevated. Uh, going down the rabbit hole a little bit, trying to read and understand some of these studies that are way over my head, you know, uh, looking at these MRF1, MathBox, you know, they talk about what kind of situations they go up. And it seems like the, the neural inactivity, if you're really in complete disuse and the muscle is not firing at all, they're elevated faster and to a greater extent. You know, they talked about spinal cord injury models where if you have a spinal cord injury and the muscle's really getting no activity, then the MRF1 math box is elevated very quickly and to a great extent. So, so more to say, you know, obviously it looks like the tourniquet might help a little bit, uh, but you know, we really have to get that that exercise on board or maybe something like an e-stem, you know, early on to really get some of that, that activity for the muscle as well. Yeah. But if we're saying that this is up the most that first 10 days and that's where you're going to lose kind of the, the lion's share from breakdown, um, man, if you can get it in and get it on early, you know, I, I think sometimes when they were talking about our success at the CFI and you were there, Ben, I mean, we were able to get this started. I mean, listen to our podcast with Travis Burns, our, our head of sports medicine. And he was post-op day one, and he was already doing his BFR on our podcast um, talking about it. So we were starting very early, even if it was just getting a tourniquet on people and, and just, you know, isometrics. And we weren't understanding the catabolism phase as well back then. We were all protein synthesis. But now I think we're starting to see this. And, you know, another, and this kind of goes with what you're saying, Ben, a, a group where I was seeing this information is, is those oxidative stress people. So a paper you pulled for me yesterday, Zach, um, with congestive heart failure folks, that they have increased angiotensin two, which was, if y'all listen to my PACER project, these are all these oxidative stress people. That's what starts to create this oxidative stress that increase in angiotensin two in those folks also makes MRF1 go up and looks like that might be one of the causes of these, these type of people losing muscle, your diabetics, your congestive heart failures, your people that are obese that have way too much oxidative stress. And so part of our thing with PACER, with the Parkinson study, et cetera, was if BFR increases ACE2, which Kyle Hackney and their group showed us, that, um, that ACE2 is what breaks down angiotensin two. Into it and, and makes it into a less oxidative stress into angiotensin 1.7. So again, another kind of pathway potentially, if you're making less angiotensin 2, then you might have less MRF1 and you're able to preserve muscle. So I think that's not so just in the surgical side. I was, I was hoping you, you'd reference that, Johnny, because I, I caught that too when Zach sent that over, that that was part of that reactive oxygen species kind of pathway um, and reading that, that Tipton paper that I, that I was telling you all about, you know, they really broke muscle protein breakdown into three kind of umbrella groups. You have the ubiquitin proteasomal group, which we've spent the vast majority of the time kind of talking about the ubiquitin ligases, but then there's the calpane 
uh, breakdown side of things. And then there's this autophagy side of things where it sounds like best I can understand it, that this autophagy side of things, they make autophagosomes, I believe, which really kind of sound like macrophages. Essentially they're these things that basically gobble up everything. Well, one of the signalers of autophagy is an increase in reactive oxygen species. So um, it really seems to kind of sort of tie tie in nicely. And then I think this, you know, since I kind of brought all that up, it is also really important for us to say these these muscle breakdown pathways are, you know, we know a lot about them. There's still a lot we really don't know about them. Um, and, and they all kind of these, those three sort of umbrella groups that I mentioned all kind of work in concert with one another. And it looks like maybe BFR or the application of the tourniquet in some respects is kind of acting on, on all three, just depending on what we are able to do with the tourniquet inflated. So anyway. Yeah. And so that's from Kevin Tipton. We'll put these papers in the, in the show notes, I guess, Scott, or links to them. Um, but also Kevin Tipton, and he's an old friend of mine, and he did one of our first podcasts. So I think that's a great podcast. A lot of people really liked it with him going deep into clinical nutrition. and Better bring him on again, I think. You know, it's been a while. Yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah. Well, and so you bringing up the, the you know, Tipton paper and also the tourniquet potentially acting on all, all three of those umbrellas. You know, it, I went back and reread that Kubota 2008 paper, and I, I feel like I forgot that they had done isometrics in that study as well. You know, they compared tourniquet only versus doing isometrics twice a day versus a control group doing nothing. And it was fascinating that, you know, their application of tourniquet twice a day was more effective than isometrics for knee extension, knee flexion, and plantar flexion for preserving strength. So, I mean, that was just yeah. very, And that very goes along with, with, with Van Loon's paper, you know, that the low load group, didn't show any change in protein synthetic rates. And if you're not doing that and, and the isometric side isn't slowing down catabolism, then you're basically just having people work on counting, <laughs> you know, which is the, which is the rub and pisses therapists off when we say that, but what are you doing in those early phases? You know, maybe get a muscle firing or whatever, that's fine. But, but yeah, I think we can do better. I think we haven't really addressed the like the what the device they use the, like the pressure the, mm-hmm. the width of the cuff all that it's probably important that we that we do that the cuff was what 77 centimeters wide which is millimeters about Mil- millimeters. 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 millimeters yeah millimeters damn um, damn metric system man you no, i don't understand it system. Who, like, it's not an inches yeah it doesn't matter I look it up every time because i can't do it yeah like i've said before the only people that use the that don't use a metric system or the country that landed on the moon. So, you know, <laughs> everyone else needs to follow us. Yeah, this is true. This is all true. Uh, so, so with with yeah, lock, sorry, it's about two thirds of the size of the Delphi cuff that we that we typically use. They used an arbitrary pressure, so they didn't individualize. So we still only have what one. I know <laughs> one paper that has really tried to prescribe pressure via some sort of measurement. Um, yeah. and, and, and they used a, but they used a 200 millimeter, uh, mercury pressure, right. which was one of the Kubota studies, right? I mean, they had one low pressure yeah. study Kubota and one yeah. high pressure study Kubota. The higher pressure study had in general better. better results. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and so, and we, and, and it seems like that might kind of, uh, feed towards 
the effect that we might have on the calpanes because I know there's been a number of papers that have shown some activation of the calpanes and that kind of thing with IPC. So if we're getting closer to 100%, then maybe that's that's something we're manipulating. But I think you know we would say probably a high pressure. We don't know yeah. percentage of limb occlusion pressure. I, I think if it's me right now, I'm probably doing 100% on myself and probably my patients, but it would just kind of depend um, circumstantially as well. So, right. It, yeah, it I, feel, like I feel 80, 80% to 100 with this. I, it just feels like that has to be where we go. On lower extremity. And of course, we're all talking lower, lower extremity here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it sounded like yeah. the reasoning for that 200 millimeter mercury pressure was on their initial study in 2008. They had done some preliminary measurements of you know, is this completely occluding? And the 200 millimeters of mercury seemed to limit blood flow without creating full occlusion, where they had a few participants at 250 and 300 millimeters of mercury where they were at full occlusion, according to the yeah. way that they measured. So they yeah, went Yeah, we wouldn't that. want to create full occlusion. That's horrible to do. You should never, yeah. ever do that. Don't the human body is fall. so weak. It can't handle full occlusion for a brief amount of time. <laughs> Yeah. Only for hours in surgery. Yeah. Only for hours in surgery. And you have to be under anesthesia. Yeah. 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 Never ever do full occlusion. It's horrible. And then moving from the clinical model, this is interesting to think about. Um, Can we slow catabolism for my favorite word in the world recovery? So, you know, these athletes that are saying they feel better, they feel fresher. If they do RIPC after a big bad event, are we tapping into the catabolic pathway and limiting muscle breakdown? And we know Steven Patterson did this study after a heart event, RIPC had lower creatine kinase levels. It would be interesting to see, do we have lower CK and also do we have lower muscle breakdown so that you know people feel a little bit fresher and haven't lost as much muscle from something hard? Yeah. You picked the wrong... You picked the wrong company name to have that as your trigger word, Johnny. I know. <laughs> I know. Recovery <laughs> science. So tell me about this recovery, Johnny. I mean, it, it seems like this is your your wheelhouse. Well, as you know, as you know, Ben, I didn't I didn't choose the name. It was chosen by um, someone else. So yeah. Um, anyways, let's move on. Let's move on from that. Um, so I guess any, any final thoughts here, guys, on it? It's pretty cool, you know, just peeling this onion and over time, you know, seeing more and more get, kind of get exposed to us. Of maybe these are the pathways we're looking at. And, and I think it's awesome to be a PT and, and go in thinking about this person's in muscle breakdown this first 10 days. And they're going into, I got to drive protein synthesis after that. And magically, when you, you look like a stud because you kept their muscle on, it was because you understood the physiology. So what do you guys think, I, passing I, final thoughts? I, I wanted to talk about the squirrels. Child. <laughs> squirrels. Yeah. I wanted to talk about them. We have to reference it. So I, I, okay. the, I think that with, <laughs> I, I haven't worked in brisket. I'm not really sure how to work it in today, so I'll just use it. But, but the, so what is interesting is like you have hibernating animals like bears. <laughs> and there are, there are squirrels that will hibernate for eight months but their muscle doesn't waste away. They don't wake up because they're dying of thirst. And so this is an area of interest for people in the muscle catabolism and various other, you know, forms of things that might happen when you just are asleep for forever and ever.
a recent development, as best I could tell, is that some researchers have... <laughs> some researchers breaking have, news. Breaking news. <laughs> so, so you're, you're telling me that you're new to the world of squirrel hibernation. Yeah, I am, like yesterday. Okay, okay. Um, and, 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 but what they've figured out uh, is that they're somehow able to remove electrolytes from their blood. Um, so they reduce like the concentration of their blood and, and, and that ha somehow avoids them getting thirsty. Um, which is interesting because what they've, what they've figured out is they have like kind of three phases of hibernation. There's a super deep sleep phase. And then there's more kind of this, like there's not really waking up. And, and, and what they've been able to do is put water next to these squirrels that are like waking up, but they're not thirsty. They don't go for the water, but if they add electrolytes to their blood, then they go for the water. Um, and so I just couldn't, I couldn't help but wonder in hearing all this about the blood and this and that, like just kind of thinking, okay, well maybe there's just something that's happening with the blood. I know Stephen Patterson has just kind of conjectured that when we've been talking to him, but maybe there's this movement of, nutrients out of the blood when it's just kind of sitting there that's sort of passive that we're just sort of manipulating this system and there's some sort of just not quite telling these atrophy pathways that jump in so powerfully just because of a movement of nutrients and that sort of thing so i just thought it was fascinating also it's like you can bring up squirrels so well and and also with cell swelling I'm, i don't even know where to go from here on that but with cell swelling um <laughs> what, what we what we, what we do know is frequency seems to be important. So if, if, yeah, I do need to reduce some sort of blood osmolarity content, um, if you get these people in twice a day, that's where these studies really shine. Um, and so if you're saying that's, that's part of what, what's happening there, then that, that could play into it potentially. You know, that's the thing we always got to reiterate with this. If you're in this Kyle's perfect world or you're in the military or pro college teams, and you can see people as much as you want, or you have cash pay and they're willing to do it twice a day, get them in, you know, have them start this right after surgery twice a day. Um, give them probably a four hour break in between. It's kind of the way they set these things up. Um, but yeah, yeah, Kyle, you sent me that video abstract. I was watching it last night. Those squirrels were cute as hell, by the way. They don't look like Texas squirrels. Yeah. yeah, but my daughter came in and she's like, why are you watching a video of sleeping squirrels? Cause they just kept showing them like laying there in like a little ball. Yeah. First she's like, is he dead? I'm like, no, he's like hibernating. She's like, why are you watching that? It looked like the most boring YouTube video you could ever watch. Um, basically yeah. is what she said. Yeah, it probably cool. was. I thought anything was else, anything else besides hibernation y'all want to talk about? I just have to say that was a really nice pivot from hibernating squirrels. I mean, yeah, uh, to bring yeah. that back to cell swelling was, hey, was nice. Hey, he might, he might have something. Right? I mean, I, I don't know what better setup you get than hibernating squirrels. But this is, this I was, I was just going to say that tying in the electrolytes and the osmolarity, it, yeah. I think it, it, it reinforces the need for hypoxia because hypoxia tends mm -hmm. to, to drive that. And we talked, that was one of the things we talked about in the, um, the cell swelling podcast. And then, right it creates a fluid shift into the cells yep. to um, hydrate or swell the cell. Kyle, I knew that's where you were going, just kind of wrapping, you know, the, the package yeah. up there. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, perfect. Brought it, hibernating squirrels back to the Teamwork makes the dream work, baby. And, and then reinforcing the need for the higher pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And blood volume is important. Um, 
and, and yep. staying hydrated. We're not a squirrel. We take in salts. We have to hydrate. But we've yeah. we've had a we have had a couple syncope episodes, um, and yeah. the, the, a couple of them. They were two very dehydrated individuals. We found out post episode. Yeah. Well, it wasn't full syncope, but close to it. So um, just throw that little pearl in there. Your patients, if they're for some reason dehydrated, if they went on their honeymoon and got Montezuma's Revenge in Mexico, which was one of them, and decided to be a far right when they got back. It's probably <laughs> not the best time when you're, you're basically losing it from both ends. So, cool. All right, so I think we, we got a nice protocol here to think about. Passive BFR started early. You're in the catabolism phase. It's the first seven to 10 days that those ends or those proteins are really going up. Um, this new paper, which was a well-done study, it looks like you can slow that pathway and they showed you preserve muscle. And then as, after that, you want to really start getting them more into BFR with exercise because the other well-done study from another well-respected lab showed that's when you start increasing protein synthesis. So, cool. We're figuring it out, man. One day we're going to have this whole thing figured out. We will have, you know, every paper I write, it's like, Although the mechanisms remain unclear, you know, one day yeah. I'm not going to have to write that anymore. Mm -hmm. And also, I don't ever want to have to write again. ACSM guidelines say that you should lose <laughs> 70% of one yeah. max. I don't think you're getting away from that one. <laughs> All right, guys, anything else? I think All right, awesome. Well, um, if you like our podcast, please go and give us five stars. Um, it really helps us out, keeps us motivated. Um, if you want to unmotivate us, give us one star and, and we'll just stop doing it. Um, so <laughs> you won't have to hear any of our bad jokes or, or Kyle's squirrel hibernation stories. All right, fellas, appreciate it. All right. All right. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.